Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're feeling happy, healthy, and safe. It's a big show, so let's jump right in. A bit later on, we'll get to know comedian Ronnie Cheng. You know him as a senior correspondent on The Daily Show, the star of Ronnie Cheng Takes Chinatown, one of the stars of Crazy Rich Asians, and the recent blockbuster Megan. You also know him as one of the most in-demand comedians out there. Today, we'll talk about why he waited until he was in university to give stand-up comedy a try and why he says, I'm still trying to figure out if I'm funny, despite selling out theaters all across the world, including two shows at the Meridian Hall in Toronto on September 23rd and 24th as part of Just for Laughs Toronto. That's a little bit later on. First, let's meet John Heater, John Grease, and Ephraim Ramirez, the stars of Napoleon Dynamite. That's the movie Jim Carrey said changed comedy movies. The story of a listless and alienated teenager who decides to help his new friend Pedro win the class presidency in their small western town while still dealing with his bizarre family back home is one of the most quoted movies of all time and now you can revisit the fun when the stars bring Napoleon Dynamite to Toronto for a special screening and Q&A at the Elgin Theatre as part of Just for Laughs Toronto on September 27th. John Heater, who plays the title character, John Grise, who plays the legendary Uncle Rico, and Efren Ramirez, who plays Pedro, join me via Zoom. John, I know that you knew director Jared Hess from Brigham Young University, but you weren't be planning on becoming an actor. So how did all of this happen for you? I had done one other I think one, maybe two other student films that I had acted in. Mm -hmm. But it was more kind of like I was part of a One was really because I was part of this production class and they needed an actor. And in the group, they're just like, well, let's just get John. He's kind of a goofball and a little bit of that class clown. I mean, I always kind of put myself out there in a way that was like, well, I made lots of videos uh, my entire like high school career for projects and and we were kind of known for making you know videos and i'd always put myself in those because it was like wow well, you know as a student you know at high school student you're not hiring actors you're just like getting your friends and goofing around but so yeah. i always enjoyed being in front of the camera just kind of in a goofy way nothing serious um and then when i got into uh college I was in the film program. Jared, mm -hmm. that's how we met. I was in the film program. I took an acting class. Um, I took a couple of acting classes and it was like kind of a requirement, but I, I just remember when I took the class, I was like really, really into it. I really got it. I, I understood it. I was like, oh, okay, this makes sense. I had done kind of like kid, you know, children's educational theater growing up during the summers and stuff, but this finally snapped and all the like the basics. Um, really kind of snapped into place. So I was, you know, I would audition for student films, for friends films. Mostly it was like, they would just put me in. And this was really one of the first ones. Jared just asked me, hey, do you um, read the script or what do you think? I think you would be good for this role. Um, and I think he just could tell that we had similar, a similar sense of uh, what this world was like. And he couldn't have been more right <laughs> I read it and I was like, yeah, everything about this, I completely understand. I get this world. I get this character. I get this humor. 
Um, and, like you know, he kind of did his version, kind of Napoleon in the voice. And I kind of put that through my own filter. And that's how I got involved. Girls only want boyfriends who have great skills. You know, like nunchuck skills, bow hunting skills, computer hacking skills. Efren, you had auditioned for two films. There was a studio movie called The Alamo uh, and Napoleon Dynamite. You got both of them. Why did you choose Napoleon Dynamite? Well, a few reasons, but uh, I mean, as an actor, you know, you audition and you hope to get anything. <laughs> so, um, and and as I say, what's funny is that I remember asking my father about like what to do, and my father said, "Follow your heart." That's what I would do, and 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 that's what Napoleon says to Pedro in the movie. Follow your heart. That's what I do. So, so. You, you you kind of trust that, um, um, and I I know Napoleon Dynamite was a, it was a it was a lead role, it was a character role, and mm. I was so sure that I could do it, but having to meet these guys, right, John Bryce and, and John Heater, and to see how the character came alive through their vision, through their eyes, and the way they were dressed as the as the character, the roles, and to see all the rest of the actors dressed as the characters, and I thought. Um, well, this is going to be different. Uh, this is going to be very unique, and 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 I I I hope um, I I can give it service. So mm -hmm. um, so I was I was really uh, uh, fortunate to be a, a part of something like this where I could say, yeah, I'm in this movie. Why do you got your hood on like that? Well, when I came home from school, my head started to get really hot. So I drank some cold water, but I didn't do nothing. So I laid in the bathtub for a while, but then I realized that it was my hair that was making my head so hot. So I went into my kitchen and I shaved it all off. I don't want anyone to see. You're listening to John Heater, John Grise, and Ephraim Ramirez, the stars of Napoleon Dynamite on The Richard Krause Show. See them live and in person for a special screening of the film and Q&A at the Elgin Theatre as part of Just for Laughs Toronto on September 27th. John uh, Grise, yes. you had quit acting. And then you uh -huh. get pulled back in to do a movie called The Big Empty. And then sort of through a weird bit of circumstance that led to napoleon dynamite for you so tell me how that worked well i, I you know i owe a lot to jory white he was the guy who called me and for the big empty and he's like what are you doing you're like my go-to guy i mean where have you been why did you quit you know and he he he, he kind of dressed me down for it you know he really gave me a hard time and said well i've got this role and if you do it and I was like, yeah, I mean, I, I haven't worked for, you know, like 10 months. I've been writing and I said, I'll do it. And then <clears throat> lo and behold, you know, after that, I went back to just scribbling away at this terrible opus that I thought I was turning <laughs> out. And and um, and then lo and behold, he he, you know, was my champion again in that uh, he, they were using the offices, the editing offices for the big empty, which was now completed. Basically they'd locked picture. So the offices were there and they could use them just so happened to be on the Fox lot, but they were just renting it. And, um, that's where they used the, for the casting, uh, of, of Napoleon. And, 
and so when they'd made offers to a few larger named <laughs> people uh, that just unceremoniously turned it down, I don't even think they read it. Uh, then they, Jory said, look, let me just show you this guy's footage. And he, he showed the footage and it just so happened it was a fun character and, you know, lucky for me. And then the offer came and, you know, at that time I'd had some guy contact me. He was working out of his apartment. He had no other clients. <laughs> and, uh, he said, I want to be your manager. And lo and behold, the, 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 that call went to him and he was like, you don't want to do this. This is nothing. Who are these people? They have no money. You know, trying to, I, I'm like, look, you're working out of your apartment and I want to read it. Let me read it. And sure enough, it was so beautifully constructed. The screenplay was so wonderfully written by Jared and Jerusha that I was like, I don't care who these people are. I don't care where this is being shot. I will drive myself there. I'm doing this movie. You know, it was, uh, it's uh, in kismet and providence, you know, wonderful. I'm so lucky. I feel so fortunate, you know. You see, this ain't your run of the mill crapperware. These are some serious Nupont fiber woven bowls. So if we purchase the 24 piece set, the mini sailboat is included. That's correct, sir. To be still talking about this film almost 20 years later is remarkable. To be able to have people like me and like the audiences that come to see you when you you screen the movie uh, still interested and still quoting it is kind of mind-blowing. It, it must really kind of take you by surprise a little bit sometimes. Absolutely, it does. In fact, you know, that I think that we, we discussed this a lot between the three of us, and I, and I, I, you know, it, this, you know, especially in this day and age, you know, in America, that's a very fractured society. You know, we we're having all kinds of kind of reinventions of our of our how we set our social strata, and 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 unfortunately, uh, unfortunately, it's there's a lot of acrimony, uh, and and this film just seems to kind of rise above that, or else kind of remind us. You know, and I don't want it to be like, oh, this is the good old days, because it's still of, of a contemporary time, even though stylistically it feels like it's another time. Yet, you know, uh, he's chatting online with babes. So it's like not like it's not so not too far. far removed. Yeah, right, exactly. But it is it's it's still within the time after, say, the 2000s, when our attention spans have dwindled to near nothing. And so, and this film still has, you know, it has inclusion, such a sense of inclusion and optimism. And I think that uh, that's why so many generations are able to come together and all agree that, you know, that it's like, it's like one fabric. There's not differences here. It's all one group that see this as, as, um, as a positive reinforcement of what I think, you know, society, I guess, can be. I mean, I don't, maybe I'm making it too heavy, but I mean, it, 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 aside from how things are, I just think that it's just has a lot of optimism. It's inclusion that, you know, and, uh, and, uh, um, and just a positive force, you know. I think it's also like it has, you know, this movie is not heavy on its like, cultural uh pop culture references and dating it in certain ways it feels old when you watch it but it feels new when you first watch it mm -hmm. and i think it's kind of that translates the same to pretty much 
like it was meant to at the time it was meant to feel like almost like am, ambiguous in terms of its setting in place it's like okay this could have taken place in the 70s i mean besides the inclusion of like chatting online with babes but in like that's really it for the mention of internet so it's almost like well it could take place in the 60s or the 70s it could take place in the 90s or the 2000s it did and so even though it does and we we tell everybody yeah it was supposed to take place in the 2000s it kind of set the stage for this um just this timeless quality and so really anybody you know i feel like having been 20 years you know at 10 years later and then at 20 years later people felt oh yeah we could watch it because it is kind of meant to be like a a movie for all for all time um, all decades all yeah time. I mean, it, it is and and there's a universality which is one of the words i was looking for there's yeah. a universality these characters are kind of like a new version of say like the old theater de soleil or the restoration comedies where yeah. these Characters were were kind of cut out of uh, of iconic or somewhat caric- caricaturistic, but the, but these would, without being caricatures, these are kind of present day molds of of, of universal characters, you know, uh, like Pantaleone or whatever they are mm-hmm. from back in the old uh, uh, restoration comedies or Teatro de Soleil, you know. And Efren, Sweet I name drops there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Efren, I think that one of the things that has made this movie last for so long is that it's about underdogs, and it's. I think there are more people who are kind of outside the circle who are feeling like underdogs than there are inside the circle, and I think that's one of the things that people love about Napoleon Dynamite. Yeah, uh, look, every single character in the film itself, it's some some way or another are i mean they're all oddballs every character in the film is just trying to figure something out about life so and what's great that you know in the end of the film is that something great happens to every single character i mean pedro becomes president napoleon ends up being friends with deb and 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 uncle rico uh that girl shows up on a bike Right, yeah, grandma gets the llama, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. She gets to make out with the llama, uh, and she and her coccyx is all of a sudden perfectly healed. But yeah, <laughs> but but also, you know, just kind of uh, kind of vamping on that theme, you know, even even like the 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 at any school I've ever been to, and people that I've known who are wildly popular or you know, good looking or like the king and queen of the school uh, dance or however, you know, homecoming, you know, when you get one-on-one with these people, they have their insecurities. Mm. They have their problems. They wonder if they fit. I mean, everybody wonders if they fit. And I think that even though the face of Napoleon is kind of like this kind of, you know, like this, this uh, dorky kind of, you know, punch it. You know, <laughs> you know, nothing like the real guy who who played him. <laughs> right. You're listening to John Heater, John Grise, and Ephraim Ramirez, the stars of Napoleon Dynamite on The Richard Krauss Show. See them live and in person for a special screening of the film and Q&A at the Elgin Theatre as part of Just for Laughs Toronto on September 27th. Anyway, but... Uh, 
you know, I think everybody does. I think that's how everybody relates to it, because no matter what, at the end of the day, you know, when you're alone in your room or you're doing whatever it is you're doing, you know, it doesn't matter how many people think you're just like the most incredible whatever. You could be the quarterback of the football team, but you could still feel like you just don't fit or, mm. you know, I mean, I, I think that everybody shares that. And I think that that, it, you know, it kind of works its way across the board that that everybody in this film has that thing. But they're despite that, they have their sense of place and their sense of, uh, you know, they they have their 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 sense of entitlement for who they are as they are, you know? Interesting to hear uh, each of you in other interviews that I've seen talk about the shooting of the film. John Heater, you said it was like a glorified student project. Uh, John, you said it was like being on summer camp. Uh, Efren, you've talked about this as well. Tell me uh, a little bit, uh, and Efren, I'll, I'll start with you, what it was like shooting uh, this film, because it sounds like it was a little bit more uh, seat of the pants than maybe some other films that you may have worked on. You know, when you're working on an independent film, it's different from a big studio picture because it's much more intimate. You have a smaller crew. And while working in Preston, Idaho, in a such small town, yeah. all we had was each other. I mean, the llama, the name of the llama is Dolly, and mm -hmm. it belongs to the director's mom, hence the <laughs> Dolly Llama. And the director's mom's name is Christmas. So... <laughs> Just knowing those facts, you kind of go. And, and her, and her last, but her last name, married name, the new name was Day. So Christmas Day, or that was maybe her her, her maiden name, Christmas Day. <laughs> wow. So, so working on the film, it 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 became so memorable because you're not focusing on on the the sort of like the rules of working on set and 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 following those protocols. But it became much more um, like that student film where your family and you start to work together every day. And for us, we were just, uh, I, I kept an example, reading the scenes where, where Kip and Napoleon are having to deal with a time machine. And I'm like, we're, we're shooting a scene with a time machine? <laughs> <laughs> There's so many moments in the film that, that, that ring so true to real life. And that's, that's one thing that we forget that a lot of these scenes are based on real occurrences that happen to the director's life. And I, and I am, I, I look back amazingly in 20, within 20 years, how strong this film has held up because we all cared for not only each other, but we really cared about the project itself. It's amazing. The life that this movie has. Yeah. I love it. I love it yeah. because in a pop culture landscape where everything is so fragmented, uh, you know, you can be the hottest thing one day and then the next day it's it feels like it's over. Uh, you know, Napoleon Dynamite is just part of the lexicon, man. It still lives in a very special place in pop culture. And that is remarkable 20 years later. How lucky are we? We we yeah. blessed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it had maybe it has something to do with the time machine. It's a time machine, Napoleon. We bought it online. Yeah, right. It works, Napoleon. You don't even know. Have you guys tried it yet? No. Okay, turn it on. Kill! Turn off! Turn off! 
It's a piece of crap. It doesn't work. I could have told you that. If you want to revisit a bit more of Napoleon Dynamite, check it out at the Elgin Theatre as part of the Just for Laughs Toronto Festival on September 27th. Comedian Ronnie Cheng first fell in love with stand-up comedy when he was just six years old, but he waited 20 years to step on a stage. Today, I'll speak to the senior correspondent on The Daily Show, the star of Ronnie Cheng Takes Chinatown, one of the stars of Crazy Rich Asians and the recent blockbuster Megan, and of course, one of the most in-demand stand-up comedians out there about why he waited so long to give stand-up comedy a try and why he says, I'm still trying to figure out if I'm funny, despite selling out theaters across the world, including two shows at the Meridian Hall in Toronto on September 23rd and 24th as part of the Just for Laughs Toronto Festival. Ronnie Cheng joined me by a Zoom from New York City. At four years old, we're going back here a little ways, at four years old, you watched Seinfeld and told your mom that you wanted to be a stand-up comedian. What was it about that show, I guess it was the interstitials of Jerry doing stand-up, that made you want to do comedy? It looked like a lot of fun. And mm. it was, I didn't know that could have been, I, I didn't even know that was a job until I saw him doing it. I didn't know that was an, a job or an art form or, um, but just, just something about it that when it, it, it looked like something I wanted to do, but mind you, I, I after I said that, I, I really didn't do anything about it for like 20 years. So, <laughs> well, no, it's not like I, it's not like I jumped on stage, you know, next week or anything. Um, yeah. So, um, it's, uh, I, yeah, I can't explain it. It was just something that it looked like I, I want, as soon as I saw it, I knew I wanted to try it. Well, it took 20 years. Uh, in your final year at the University of Melbourne in Australia, you finally got up on stage. What was the impetus to get you on stage? And do you remember any of the jokes that you told? Yeah, I just knew uh, that was probably the last chance I would get to do this uh, college competition because it was my final year of university. And um, not only do I remember the jokes, I have video of it. Oh, wow. That and will remain... <laughs> it, will, it will remain hidden forever. <laughs> so I guess that means it probably didn't go that well? Actually, I won that competition. Wow. So uh, it went really well. And then that was what um, made me want to do stand-up um, uh, outside of university. Because at that time, university was very much my world. Um, and I just wanted to try it in a, a more public almost less safe environment. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, you were studying law and finance. So I guess that was something that you were, I mean, did you think you would become a lawyer at, at some point and then comedy kind of swept you away or or exactly what happened there? Um, yeah, I thought I was going to go become a lawyer because, well, actually I thought I was going to go become a um, management consultant. Mm -hmm. uh, because I actually had the job offered to me. And um, I just um, uh, I, I just felt like I had a chance to do stand-up. And if I didn't do it, then I wouldn't get a chance to do it. I would never get around to doing it mm -hmm. if, I, if I entered the, the kind of corporate world. But 
and I kind of knew that like if I did stand up and it didn't work out, I could always join the corporate world later on. So I was just lucky to be able to have that opportunity to decide. Um, so, um, and and also, I mean, uh, it wasn't like uh, the job offers were, they weren't like knocking the door down to hire me. You know, I was, so it, it, it kind of was almost the path of least resistance to do stand-up. In your specials, you have talked about uh, your parents and expectations that they had uh, on you. What did your parents think of the decision to do comedy? Uh, I don't know, because I never told them. <laughs> I, just, I just went to go do it. And then by the time they found out, it was kind of too late. Right. Um, yeah, I never had a sit-down moment. Because even me, myself, I never had a sit-down moment with myself. I was just, um, just kind of doing it while um at that time i was doing stand-up while getting qualified as a lawyer mm -hmm. so i was doing both things at the same time so in my head i was kind of like i was still hedging my bets at that time so i never felt like i was totally committing one way or the other so i just never told them you're listening to ronnie chang on the richard Krause show see him live when he does two shows at the meridian hall in toronto on september 23rd and 24th as part of just for laughs toronto it's interesting to hear you say that because you told npr uh, a year or so ago that you're still trying to figure out if i am funny that's yeah. the quote now surely you're joking about that um first of all uh, way to do your research and um you found some yeah you, you really dug deep there and um no i i think it's a constant search for the next joke mm -hmm. right like um yeah i i think uh all all the great comics i know were always looking for the next joke mm -hmm. so yeah i think um I don't know. It's it's uh, it's hard to describe unless you do comedy. But you almost have to think that you're not very good to keep finding the next joke. Otherwise, you kind of would never write the next joke in a way. Um, so yeah, and and you know when when comics watch other comics, that's kind of how we feel. We're always uh, all the great comics are always in awe of other great comics. So whenever I watch other comedians, I'm always like, damn, these jokes are great. You know, this guy's great. This, 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 this woman's great. Um, uh, I need to get better. That's kind of how I feel about it. Well, a lot of your standup is based on experiences uh, that you've had. So what does it take for something to trigger uh, uh, the idea for a joke? Or is it just something that organically you just know? Could yeah, I wish I knew because then I could kind of manufacture it, reverse <laughs> engineer it if I knew exactly the formula. But uh, usually if something's like pissing me off really mm -hmm. badly, I kind of know that there's a bit here somewhere. So so usually anger is a good indication. Um, I write a lot on stage as well. So I kind of need the stage time to 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 to, to write jokes. So um, if even if I have a premise in order to develop a joke, I kind of have to go on stage, and uh, something about being on stage just helps me creatively figure out the puzzle. Some which is something I I 
kind of have less success sitting at a desk mm-hmm. kind of writing out um but it's yeah it's just mind, uh, it's just kind of going out to live your life man that's just how i always did comedy i have to go and go out and live life a little bit just to get some um uh inspiration is that why you do four or five shows a night are you working on material and just trying yeah. things yeah 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 for sure i mean that's the joy of um that's the dream right to be able to do stand-up comedy <laughs> multiple yeah. times a night is the dream it's the dream to do stand-up comedy in new york city um to be able to run from show to show is where the joy actually is you know like like uh it, it, it get it, this is where it gets esoteric but it's the running around finding the material doing 12 minutes here 12 minutes there that's the joy of the whole um dare i say uh, man the, the the joy of the job that's, yeah you know that that's what is the most fun um it's the way you get better it's the way you write new jokes it's the way you um you uh it's the way that you um confirm that your existing material is actually good is working you know multiple times you know new york city is the the city for it there's just so many all my comedy heroes came from here that's what all my comedy heroes did so when you're running around town doing it, you're kind of following in their footsteps in a very esoteric way. People people say that as though it's an imposition, right? To to work at a daily show and then do stand-up at night. But that's the dream. To work at a daily show and then do stand-up at night is the dream. Like may we may we all be so lucky to be able to work a day and night at you know something we like doing. You talk about this in interviews and you say that you uh, were trying to, maybe this was at the beginning of your career, trying to turn being the only Asian person on stage into an advantage. How, what does that mean to you? Wow. First of all, you really do your research and I really appreciate that because um, you, we, I, you know, we do so many interviews and it's just people just you know saying whatever first comes to their mind whatever they thought of five minutes ago so thank but thanks for doing your research i I really appreciate it well thank you um, for your time and um i think um what i meant was like there were like you know there, there were like a thousand reasons to not do stand-up mm. at the time and i was trying to figure out what my what the reasons to do it were and one of the reasons to do it stand up for me personally was because um i there was there was stuff that I was thinking that I never heard anyone say on stage before um some of it is obviously just me individually nothing to do with race and then some of it had to do with race meaning i've never seen a chinese person say this thing on stage before or describe this perspective so if no one's going to do it i'm going to go do it so that's kind of what I meant by um, uh, I was able to kind of talk about Chinese stuff or whatever. I mean, more more accurately, I was able to talk about my personal experiences, which were very different to Australians at the time. And instead of it being um, unrelatable, I managed to make it. I I just I I think I I figured out a way to make it so that not only was it not unrelatable, it became a fresh perspective, right? 
so that's kind of that that's kind of what you want if you're bringing something new to the table you kind of want it to be a fresh perspective that people find interesting uh, as opposed to something that's unrelatable right and so i just managed managed to find that i think well i think you've done that uh certainly with uh some of the bits in asian comedian destroys america when you talk about uh the amazon prime and prime before send it to me before i know i actually want it all that sort of stuff so right. funny but the audience gets it because it's a universal thing and sure. it's relatable but you're talking about it as someone who is not exactly new to america but you're commenting from a, a point of view of someone who is an american talking about their country and yet it's still completely relatable and that's the fine line right there yeah yeah thank you and um i think the other point to that was that I was kind of new to America when I was writing that I when I only came in 2015 and I was developing that special ever since I got there in 2015 so I launched I released that special in 2019 I toured it 2017 so I was like I was two or three years into America when I wrote that material um but the relevant point I wanted to bring up was that um I when I first came to America on the Daily Show, I'm I'm not sure if you, this came up in your research, but I I met up with John Oliver mm. to ask him how to be a non-American correspondent on the Daily Show, a very specific question, which he's kind of uniquely placed to answer, and he was very generous with his time and his advice. Then he told me that um, it took him two years to relearn how to do comedy in America, and. I didn't, and he was spot on to the yeah. day, because it it's one thing to kind of joke about um, if you're a, if you're a foreign. I'm I'm just talking in the world of of stand up comedy. Mm -hmm. If you're a foreign headliner, it, and you're doing you're headlining, meaning you're established in another country as a comic. Uh, established and experienced. You're listening to Ronnie Chang on The Richard Krause Show. See him live when he does two shows at the Meridian Hall in Toronto on September 23rd and 24th as part of Just for Laughs Toronto. When you come to America, you can kind of like kill as the foreign act, um, you know, for 15 minutes, 20 minutes, even 45 minutes. But um, if if you're doing material as I was, it, you're kind of killing on the basis of I'm a uh, fish out of water. Oh, this is weird. Uh, well, you know what? America does things this way. There's there's 20 flavors of Coca Cola. What's up with that? <laughs> and all that stuff will that 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 stuff will work, but there's a time limit to it mm -hmm. because after you live in America for about a year or two years, people start to smell that like. You, you've been here long enough. You right. know you shouldn't be the fish out of water anymore. I wonder if there's any lines for you. If there's any point at which you think, oh, it's 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 too much. We can't go past this point. Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I think it's the question that most lay people think of when they think of comedy, right? That kind of what's the line? Yeah, uh, especially in this kind of like um, uh, kind of grievance culture that we have i mean you, you kind of hit it on the head here that's you 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 open you the question with like the stuff you would say at the comedy show that you wouldn't say in public and i think that's the point right it, that is the comedy show and there are there are things that you would say as a comedian at a comedy show that you wouldn't say in a corporate boardroom or even on a sidewalk on the street so that is the point the point is that you know it, it is a comedy show there's a context to what you're saying the context is 
a comedy show, uh, a professional comedy show, and the person telling the jokes, in this case is me, but it could be any other comic, is a professional who earns their money doing comedy and has tested their material in multiple rooms and has put thought to it and they're good at their job and it's not something a lay person can do. And I think lay people don't really want to hear that because when you see comedy, the great comics make it look easy, yeah. right? And so if you distill it down to one sentence, it's almost like, well, this guy's just going on stage just saying stuff. Uh, why can't I do it? And the thing that people don't want to hear is that you can't do it. There is no easy answer because it's an art form. And so everyone wants an equation, right? Like uh, I went to law school, man. I, I understand everyone wants a test. Yeah. What is crossing the line? But yeah. the beauty of stand-up comedy is that it's an art form. And so you have to develop your, if you want to do it, if you want to know where the line is, then you have to go and develop your skill set. You can't just pick up a brush and expect to paint. You have to go develop your skill set night after night in front of a live audience. And there is no equation. So sometimes uh, you, you know, sometimes the point of stand-up is to cross the line. Sometimes the point of some bits is to cross the line. You know, George Carlin was yeah. crossing the line many times to make a point, to make a broader point, you know. But I, I guess the difference is that he's a professional who don't knows what he's doing. He's just not he's not some guy on the street just saying offensive stuff, you know. And for the layperson, I get why, you know, if you put five seconds of thought into it, I can see why it's hard to understand the difference. But if you devote your career to it, you know, you can tell the difference <laughs> between George Carlin and some guy on the street just saying <laughs> offensive stuff. <laughs> uh, Ronnie, thank you so much. What a pleasure to speak to you. No, man, thanks for speaking to me. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah. And thanks for doing your research and great questions. And um, um, yeah, thanks so much. That was Ronnie Chang on The Richard Krause Show. See him live when he does two shows at the Meridian Hall in Toronto on September 23rd and 24th as part of Just for Laughs Toronto. To find out more about that show and the Napoleon Dynamite screening, check out toronto.hahaha.com. Big thanks to the guys from Napoleon Dynamite. Big thanks to Ronnie Cheng. Of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk to you again soon. Mm -hmm.